Good evening and welcome to Kirkpatrick Memorial. I'd like to firstly thank everybody for coming tonight. Uh, I realized this afternoon that I was competing with one of the warmest days that we've had in 2011, one of the sunniest days, and also with a local uh, sporting star uh, competing to win a very major tournament in the United States of America tonight. So thank you very much for uh, coming here tonight. Folks, before we come to think about Romans 12, uh, I just want to pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, as we come to listen to your word, we pray that you will speak to us and that we will hear you. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Folks, tonight's sermon is split into two parts. The first part will deal with the first couple of verses, and the second part will take the majority of the rest of the text. So if we're quite a way in and we're still only at verse 2 or 3, please do not panic about that. It won't take us long to get through the second section. I wonder if you have ever taken a step back and marveled over something quite beautiful, maybe on a day like today, the scenery that we have around us, or maybe a painting, an amazing building. Whenever my wife and I, Lisa, visited Rome, we were in awe of the, the great city that was before us. And this is the city that this letter was headed to tonight. I couldn't get over how amazing the Vatican was, the size of the building, the scale of everything in it, including the artwork. But there was one thing that was just absolutely outstanding, and that was the Sistine Chapel. In the Sistine Chapel, if you've been there, I think you would agree that it's arguably one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, with some of the world's most precious and beautiful art adorning the walls. The picture that is painted tells the story of the Bible from the very start until the end. Each individual piece is exquisite. However, it's only when you step back and look at the whole room that it becomes completely breathtaking and we get it all in perspective. Now, like my, me, I almost got thrown out of the Sistine Chapel for taking a photograph when I shouldn't with the flash on. But... I still got the whole beauty of that room and the painting. When you pan out from God touching Adam's hand into this whole story, it's truly incredible. It's almost as if Paul has done something similar when we come to Romans 12. He starts into this chapter and he has looked back over 1 to 11 and the picture that he has painted in that, the story that he's told us about our sin about God's wrath against our sin, God's righteous judgment and the law and our feelings. And yet looking at this great picture, he's struck by one thing more than any, and that's God's amazing goodness and his mercy. Paul has a refreshingly clear view of God's mercy and why God is merciful. As he states in chapter 11, 
It's because God deeply loves his people. There is also another reason for Paul's understanding and his view of God's grace. Essentially, Paul was a hitman for the high priest. In Acts, it is recorded that he held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. But one day, when Paul was en route to round up some Christians, he encountered Jesus. Some scholars say Paul was not as much converted, but called in this instant. Paul realized who Jesus was. He realized that from what he had done, he deserved nothing more than death himself. But God showed him mercy. And the rest of Paul's life, his devotion to God and to the church, is testament to the mercy that he received. So roughly 2,000 years on, what is our view of God's grace? And is it still as important? That's the question that I hope we can explore tonight in this text. When you know Jesus, what implications does his life have on ours? Let's read verse 1 and we'll find out. We can see initially that Paul takes our view of God's mercy very seriously. He says dramatically, I urge you. In the New King James Version, it says, I beseech you. It's very dramatic. And the language is a plea. It's almost a powerful, take this seriously. I wonder if Paul was to write this today in our modern email format, would he bold the text and maybe underline it? Paul uses this dramatic language because he believes, just as he has experienced, that our view of God's mercy will have big effects on how we live. Well, how might we live if we have a wrong or distorted view of God's mercy? I wonder, do you own anything very expensive? Maybe a nice car, an expensive watch, an expensive painting? something of great value to you. How do you treat that item? I would imagine that you treat it with great care, with a lot of respect and devotion, and possibly even a lot of time given to that object. The reason why we take great care of these items, I believe, is because we know how much they cost. I think that Paul knew how much it cost God to forgive him. And this understanding made Paul do a complete 180-degree turn in his life. So Paul then encourages us, in view of this grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What does Paul's image of a living sacrifice mean? And how can that be holy and pleasing to God? Well, I think that the key to unlocking this phrase is found in the Old Testament practice of sacrifice. It was a practice of a Jewish person, as commanded by God, to regularly seek temporary forgiveness of sin by sacrificing an animal. In Hebrews Hebrews 9, 22, we read, There is no forgiveness, 
without the shedding of blood. This goes back as far as Adam and Eve when they send God's sacrificed animals to provide clothing for them. And this was to cover up their nakedness. There were numerous sacrifices according to strict rules given by God, but the three main rules which always applied are as follows. The first, the animal must be spotless, without blemish, perfect. The person offering the sacrifice had to identify with the animal because it was a relational thing. The person offering the animal had to inflict death upon it. What is significant about Paul's metaphor is that there is no death in this. This is a living sacrifice. Something is quite different. So why is this the case? When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he became the ultimate spotless sacrificial lamb that we identify with through our lives and on whom our sin inflicted death, not for a temporary, but a permanent solution forever. So instead of sacrificing to receive God's forgiveness, we can now live a life that is sacrificial because of God's forgiveness. It is in view of this mercy, this deep love that Jesus had to give his life for us, that we have been given the opportunity to enjoy new life. Life in which our minds and our bodies can be used not for messing up the world anymore, but for putting it back together, and as we'll see later in the text, for serving others. A living sacrifice is a whole life, essentially, devoted to God, which raises a big question for us today. I was very struck when reading this, what areas of my life have I not completely given up to God? What areas of my life am I holding on to? Paul tells us here that when, when we give it all to God, it pleases him and it is wholly set apart. Paul then goes on to finish this verse with a statement. This statement has been rendered in the 2011 uh, NIV. In our Bibles in the pew, it is the word spiritual. But in the 2011 NIV, it's rendered the words to read true and proper worship. Now, the Greek word used here is logikon, and all my best Greek pronunciation, which means reason. Essentially, Paul is debunking the Greco-Roman thought that worship is primarily something existential, outside of the body, a higher thing, something only done maybe in prayer or in song, or something where the body is more of a hindrance rather than a help to this worship. Although that this letter was written to a very specific community and era, I think that this rings true today. What Paul says here is much greater than that. We can worship God, we can give thanks to God, and we can please God 
both as we worship in the normal, what we would say, and as we practically serve God. I wonder, are we sometimes guilty of abdicating our responsibility of worshiping God in the practical sense by only seeing something as worship that we can do just in a church or in a quiet time? Whenever we scratch beneath the surface of this, we see that we believe in life, sorry, what we believe in life will have a significant impact on how we live. Let's take this verse from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, 5 to 6, as an indication of that. Fools fold their hands, and the word here would have meant fold their hands like that, and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, as I've showed, there are three different Hebrew words for this, for the use of hands. The first hand has folded them. They've essentially put their hands over and checked out. They've disconnected with life. The third hand in the verse is a selfish grabbing hand, which would be more literally translated as a fist, full and grabbing at life. It seems to be a selfish hand. But the second hand is quite different. It's a hand that is open. And when it's open, it is both ready to receive from God and to give out again. And this hand is the one that is described with having tranquility. You see, the actions of the hands communicate the person's belief. The closed hand says, God, you've given me life, a great gift, an opportunity to do something within my life on earth, and I choose to do nothing. The third takes the gift and only uses it for one's own gain, whereas the second sees that the gift is in fact a gift and then chooses to bless others with it. Because of this danger, Paul starts the next section with a warning. Do not be transformed, sorry, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. After reading verse 1, you can feel the excitement building up and the hope in the future that we can live a life that is devoted to Jesus, pleasing him by what we do in light of his grace. But then quite suddenly and quite abruptly, we're brought crashing back down with what almost seems like a rebuke, a firm reminder that we can disengage with the life that God calls us to. What I find amazing about this example is the way in which it happens. The Bible in many places tells us that Satan wants us to feel at living God's way. We even sang about it. It says he will stop at nothing and even compares him to a prowling lion ready to pounce on his prey at any moment. This kind of imagery is very dramatic. It makes us quite aware and quite vigilant, ready for an attack. But here in this text, it couldn't be more different. It's much more subtle, as Paul tells us, that the most effective way of getting us to feel at living this life with God is simply conforming to the pattern of the world. 
It's so simple, but yet so effective because we don't even notice we're doing it. Satan doesn't want to make Christians hate God. Instead, he wants just to lull us to sleep, making us completely ineffective for God's work. As we drift off in our chairs with wealth and consumerism before our eyes, it's much easier for our eyes just to slowly close over. And just before we doze off, for our hands to fold neatly over, disengaging us from the world. And this is the polar opposite to what Paul is calling us to in a sacrificial life metaphor. It's harsh, but I say this because I fall into this trap all the time. Thankfully for us, Paul gives us timely advice on how to avoid this trap. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The answer is almost in the warning. Don't conform. And it's not to be confused with just an outward appearance, maybe dressing the same. Neither is it only inward. This is a transformation of the whole body, the whole person. Paul moves on to say that when your mind is renewed, you'll be able to approve what God's will is. Some people have made this very complicated, I find. But essentially what Paul is saying is that when you seek to live like Jesus, you will learn to think like him. For us, I think the easiest example of this is when we read the Bible. For example, over the last number of weeks in the Sunday mornings, we've been hearing about the Ten Commandments. I have found that they have transformed my mind in such a way that when I'm confronted with the opportunity to conform, I know that that is not God's good and pleasing will. So then Paul moves on. He says, in the final section, he deals less with our relationship with God and more about them, what that means, our relationship with both ourselves and with the others around us. From verses 1 right through to 8, there seems to be three main points that I wanted to draw out. The first of those was, what qualifies us to serve God? Our, our right standing before God by his grace alone. The second point is then the attitude in which we should enter into serving rules, as Paul calls us to. And then third, identifying the skills and the gifts that we have and how we might use those for God and for others. So Paul starts off by saying, for the grace, for by the grace given me, I think that we can learn quite a lot from what Paul says in this simple statement. He shows that the only thing that qualifies him to serve God is, is what God has done for him, not what he has done for God. So if you're here tonight and you feel in any way inadequate to serve in Kirkpatrick, please take heart that if you know Jesus, you can serve. If you have experienced his grace, 
then you're equipped and you're in right standing to serve within this church. Folks, we have seen, I have seen, and I'm sure you have seen also, that the spiritual giants that I know in my life are people who didn't necessarily talk a good game, but instead were people who were willing to get involved. Kirkpatrick is a church that is completely open for you to get involved in. And we want to make it an easy experience for you to get involved in the many organizations that we have within the church and our community at whatever level is appropriate for you. In Kirkpatrick, we have some people who are also very busy. Wouldn't it be a great opportunity to live out this life that Paul calls us to by lifting some of the burden off their shoulders and carrying the load with them? If you look back at verse 3, Paul warns us of entering a rule thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. He uses the phrase, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. The word faith here means some sort of spiritual power. But let's make sure we read this again. And inside the context of the passage, we're told to be humble and to not get proud. This suggests, firstly, that if we are too proud, then we may abuse the power or the gift that God has given us to serve. A good way to avoid this pride is to get involved in something like hospitality, I find, serving tea and coffee and welcoming people. Jesus was the servant king, born in a stable and worked as a carpenter, and humility is a character trait that we need in leadership and is cultivated over time. When I first came to work or serve in any shape or form within the church. Humility was not something that came easy to me. It was something that I've learned over time as I've understood more about the character of Jesus. And secondly, in this context, Paul goes on to use the metaphor of a body with many parts that do not all perform the same function. But to make one complete body, they must fit together. And they all carry the same importance. Without the hands or the feet, this body would be not in any way near as useful. For those who are here tonight in leadership roles, look to Jesus for your example. The God who washed his disciples' feet. How much more will your other leaders want to go the extra mile when they see you treat them like kings? One other important aspect of the body metaphor is that it is believed that Paul here sees us, the church, as the body and Jesus as the head. I think that this should give us great confidence and encouragement. As we seek to serve within the church, we know that we are connected to Jesus and he is the driving force behind our work. The third and final part deals with our relationship with others. Like a manifesto of practical love, it deals very specifically with 
our individual gifts and our skills, and how we can use those for other people within the congregation and outside. This brings us to the first point of this final section. All of these gifts that we read in verses 7 to 8 seem to be for one specific purpose. I wonder, can you guess what it is? Let me read some of these for you. Serving, leading, teaching, encouraging, giving, and showing mercy. I hope you've guessed it. (laughs) They're all for the benefit of other people. These gifts aren't to be used in a selfish way. They're to be used to serve, to lead, to teach, and to encourage amongst others. How countercultural is that? He outlines a previously made point from the body of Christ metaphor. We all have different gifts. Isn't that great? We're not all called to be the same or to do the same but we're called to be different. Some of us are good with children. Some of us are good with older people. Some of us are good at teaching, whereas some of us are better at leading other people. Folks, now is the time to think about this. What gifts in your life has God given you? Where do you fit into this list of servers, teachers, givers? And how can you help other people, both within Kirkpatrick Memorial and in our community, with the gifts that God has given you? If you're a good teacher, then please help us by teaching our children. If you have a desire to serve, then join our welcome team. Serve tea and coffee with us in the morning or in the evening time. If you play an instrument, please join with our musicians. Folks, I hope you get the picture in that. Where your gifts lie, we have a great opportunity to use those for God and for other people. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who we know from what the Bible tells us, is God in human form. He stood in front of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, tear this down and I will rebuild it in three days. The people around him laughed. They said, it took 40 years to build this temple and you say you can do it in three. But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. As we come to learn more about this towards Easter, we soon realize that the Spirit of God dwelt in that temple. And when Jesus' divine life was extinguished on the cross, God's Spirit left the temple. When we believe and when we follow Jesus, that same Spirit enters us and equips us for this work. The question then remains, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to fall asleep, let the world lull us into that slumber? 
maybe fold their hands or become ineffective while the rest of the world flies by? Or will we be awakened to the reality that Jesus is alive? That on the third day, the temple in Jesus was rebuilt? That God's Spirit now dwells in us and amongst us and equips us for this work? Folks, God's love won through Jesus Christ. And through him alone, we can be set free from the burden of sin because he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is for this reason that Paul wrote these words, which I would like to finish with tonight. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful message. Lord, we pray that you will move in our hearts tonight. Lord, help us to identify the gifts and the skills that you have given us whether it be in teaching, in serving, or in leading, whatever it may be, Lord, show us those gifts. Make them clear. And Lord, provide for us opportunities in which we can use those to bless your people and beyond. Father, we pray that in this beautiful evening, as we leave tonight, you will be with us and you will continue to speak your message into our hearts. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that through his name and by his blood, we will serve you in this community. Amen.